The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Market moving insight and analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. This is CNBC Breaking News. Market sell-off. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Jim Cramer and David Faber coming to you live from separate locations this morning. Uh, futures weaker than we've seen in uh, several sessions as the White House warns Americans to brace for a very painful few weeks as it pertains to U.S. caseload and the estimated number of deaths. We will get ISM today. ADP's already out. Several European banks suspending their dividends this morning. But, Jim, uh, how much of this morning's action uh, sort of does reflect the grim picture that the White House set forth yesterday? It's difficult to imagine how, how, let's say, optimistic people were versus what the president said last night. And yet I think that many people in the stock market understood that the numbers were completely understated. It, you did leave the office saying, wow, that could be just terrible uh, because they didn't caveat as much as you would have thought. They didn't say, you know what, uh, but we're doing great in this state, this state, this state. They just said, look, we're, this is the reality. I think the reality uh, rolls back some of the of the 19.9 percent game we had last week in the S&P, then what's going to roll back the rest is if we have credit problems. And I'm going to defer to David because I know David knows behind the scene what day it is today. Today's the day you're supposed to pay your rent. And David, a lot of people aren't going to make those payments, are they? No, a lot of aren't. And it's not just small and medium-sized businesses, uh, uh, Jim. There are plenty of larger companies also that are making decisions, at least again, uh, according to some of the people that I've spoken to who are familiar with those decisions, not to pay or to pay some but not all uh, in the belief that there should be and will be forbearance or at the very least it will give them a negotiating position of some kind with whoever it is that they're paying uh, that rent too, Jim. So that becomes an issue. It's one that you've certainly been highlighting for some time. We've seen the weakness, of course, in the market in terms of CMBS, talking about credit there, uh, and the REITs and, and those that own so many of the office buildings or shopping malls or other things that require a rent payment so that they can then pay their shareholders or pay the dividends typically that they do as REITs. Yeah, and, and Carl, I, I think that the other thing we have to watch is uh, the oil patch is falling apart. Uh, I know you know Whiting. Whiting filed for uh, bankruptcy today. I think that they're that. The first of many. And what happens is a lot of people are saying, wait a second, uh, this, is the other, this is the other bomb that's dropping. And these are companies that have been the greatest employer. I mean, Whiting had fabulous uh, Midwest had Bakken assets at one time. Now, the Bakken, you can't make any money in the Bakken. You can't make any money uh, in the Eagleford. You can't make any money pretty much anywhere, certainly in Colorado. And I think that this is something we have to keep an eye on because when we start seeing the layoffs, some of the layoffs are going to bounce back and some of them are not coming back at all. Yeah, uh, a lot of headlines around oil today, Jim. I'm sure you've seen uh, sources on Bloomberg, uh, supply of the Saudis uh, at capacity now, uh, tankers with no destination. Uh, The president called it a tax cut last night, but as B of A pointed out, gasoline consumption's down 37 
year on year. So we're not getting that consumer pop, as we've talked about repeatedly this week. Right. I mean, it's it's ethereal. Uh, it would be terrific if people were driving. Uh, no one's going anywhere. I think that the the flip side's better. The fact that no one's going anywhere is actually means maybe we can get out of this faster. Uh, but it is true that uh, what matters in terms of what was the best employment area, it, it was the Permian. And more importantly, it, you, you want energy self-sufficiency. You do not want to get us back into where uh, the Russians and the Saudis want us, which is to be enslaved to them uh, in terms of national security. So I, I hope that the, the president and the Treasury Secretary worry about this issue. Because I and I know we had a senator on earlier on Squawk talking about why are we supporting the Saudis who are really trying to take away our energy self-sufficiency? Something really worth watching, because that could be a, uh, a real casualty of this period that won't come back. And, and I think something that was really great about America that's happened in the last three years. Yeah, I mean, I remember when we were talking about 10 million barrels right. a day, Jim, it feels like not that long ago. And now we're at 13 the numbers are stunning in terms of what this industry has been able to do. Let's call it now over the last 10 to 15 years, really, in just a continual upward, uh, uh, upward move. Um, I wonder if you think and wh- uh, where we're going to bottom here. I know it's an impossible question to answer on WTI, but you were talking yesterday about the fact that when you get to the Permian, you know, uh, and you're in the current m- month, it's like 10 bucks or yes, something bucks. like that. I mean, is it possible we could see the futures actually hit those levels as well? I think so. Uh, I, I think the fact that the Permian being the largest area, they're only getting 10 bucks. Why doesn't that reverberate throughout? I, I deal with a lot of tanker companies and they're almost full up. There's still some room in Cushing, which is back in play, but they're holding it back for when oil trades between five and ten dollars. Uh, this is a, a deflationary period the likes of which we haven't seen since the Great Depression. Uh, and remember, in the Great Depression, they were trying so hard to keep prices up. Uh, they were doing everything they could. They were killing animals to keep prices up. They were holding back crops. Uh, are we going to get to that? I think that we should be thinking about that uh, for, some, for some assets. We see a, a lumber going down, but it's really oil that we, we can't afford oil to go down to 510. That's completely destructive for our companies. Almost every company except for the one you see there, Chevron, is not ready for that. Uh, And you do not want a big raft of bankruptcies. Uh, Scott Sheffield, who was the man who told me we're going to get to 12 million a day when we were eight, and that was predicting we could get up to 18 million. Uh, Scott Sheffield is the dean of the group, pioneer. Uh, He's talking about only having seven companies left during this period, maybe 10 companies. Can you imagine? And the people keep saying consolidation. And what he keeps saying is, why would you buy a company that's going to be bankrupt soon? So I think we have to follow that with a a level that's almost as important, David, as as some of these companies that have really bad balance sheets like T-Mobile in the new world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, you asked about credit and, and I'm sorry. Yeah. And Carl, when it comes to credit, I think there there should be a focus this morning on the fact that Carnival Cruise Lines can raise four billion dollars. This is according to Bloomberg. Don't have it directly at a roughly 12 percent coupon. Now, that is a stunning interest rate. But nonetheless, the fact that a cruise line is able to access the capital markets should certainly be seen, I would think, in some way as a positive. Yeah, I guess so. But there's a piece called Lost at Sea in Pandemic today. Mr. Ashford, Orlando Ashford, this is in the opinion page of the Wall Street Journal. He's president of the Holland American Line. 
I think he sounds aggrieved, aggrieved that he had a ship, the Zandam, that left March 7th from Buenos Aires. If you check the timeline, Feb 1 was Diamond Princess, which is one of theirs. That was the first case from Hong Kong. Feb 4 docs confirms 10 cases. You tell me that this company, which sounds aggrieved, Carnival Cruise, that they are aggrieved when one month, one month they had to know exactly what was going on. All aboard. No thanks. Sold to you. Yeah, Jim, I think you responded to a Twitter follower yesterday asking about uh, about cruise stocks. And your point was, if you believe people are going to be standing in line and paying good money to get back on a boat, then go ahead and buy. But that's clearly not where your head is. I think it's interesting. Uh, It's interesting. They never identify Carnival when you read these articles. It's it's Holland American. Uh, This is a real company. And you read this piece. And it comes out the same day as that fantastic, of course, a meek, facetious bond deal. And I just say, frankly, I'd like a little shame. You know, these were the precipitous. Now, they were obviously there's been many more since then. But when you take when you leave March 7th from Buenos Aires, what did you think was going to happen? What did you think was going to happen? And uh, you may feel that you're aggrieved and you want maybe you even want money from the U.S. Treasury. None of these companies pay U.S. taxes. None of them. But uh, I think that when this book, when this era is written and the book is written, you're not going to look at the cruise lines as being good actors. Yeah. Um, Jim, let's try that to may draw very a well line be the from case. this. Yeah. Uh, try, draw a line from this uh, grim aspect of what's happening to sort of the positive things, which we talked about for much of the week. That is the Abbott test. Uh, several thousand samples going around the country. Squawk had a doctor on today that's going to start employing those today. Um, Becton Dickinson with more testing news today. I saw yesterday, Jim, 17 diagnostic companies have received emergency use authorizations from the FDA in just the past couple of weeks. Look, the Abbott was a game changer. Uh, and you're absolutely right. I, I don't, I'm reflecting more on the bond deal for being upset. Uh, what I do like and I really like was, is, is that we're now it, it's in the hands of the professionals. Uh, there's an amazing article in Atlantic which talks about how they, you were getting Roche tests and they're going to Quest, which then pulled its today, pulled its guidance. And the Quest article, uh, the, the, the article about Quest was basically that there was this big jam up. Uh, and one of the reasons why you keep hearing, you know what, I took a test, but it didn't come back for days and days, may have been related to how convoluted the chain was. But Abbott makes it so the chain ends and you just get your test and we can test and test and test. We also find out, of course, that the reason why their personal protective gear is in such short supplies. Every time you tested before, you pretty much had to throw away what you had. I think Abbott was the game changer. Right. I thought that was the first victory. I call him that the midway in World War II. It was the first time that we had something against COVID. Remember, we, the Japanese beat us everywhere until midway. I feel like this was the first victory we had, uh, and it should not be overlooked because testing, testing, and testing is the real way that we're going to win this war. Uh, There's a great piece uh, by Bill Gates, Jim, which I'm sure you've already read, which basically has three suggestions. National shutdown, which I know you've talked about, testing at scale, and then amazingly talks about building capacity 
to make a vaccine at scale if and when it comes so you can quickly spool up and make yeah. a billion doses uh, for countries around the world that need it. Uh, that was a great thing. This had, I have to hand it to Twitter, Ned Siegel, because Jack Dorsey doesn't come on. I didn't know about that piece until I saw it in Twitter. I think that that's great because, you see, we have, uh, I don't know if people recognize Alex Gorsky, same day as Abbott, saying that he can make, that, that when they get their vaccine, not if, but when, they can make a, a billion doses, which reminds me of what happened with polio. Polio, one day, you're incredibly worried. Your, your parents don't want you to come out. The next day, you're eating a sugar cube. And the sugar cube's got something in it, but you're too little to know what it is. And it, it makes it so you don't get polio. When I read what, what, uh, what Gates had to say, I said to myself, you know what, here's a game plan. But we're still not getting that national lockdown, which is a shame. I, I would have thought that national lockdown would have, uh, uh, last night, that they would have talked about that. Because then that would be the coup de grace against, uh, uh, against COVID. Uh, we have to take COVID. We got to make it so that there aren't people going to a hospital ship and cheering because they're too close to each other. We have to obey the, t- yeah. you, you know, when I go get my bagel in the morning, it's like there's people there and I'm like six feet away from them. And it's like, hey, don't get any closer. That's the way America has to be. And it's very unlike Americans. Uh, you are all learning how to relate to each other on the street to the degree we go out there. Uh, guys, let's get to Meg Terrell, get the latest numbers on the virus this morning. Hi, Meg. Hey, Carl. Well, we're taking a look at that testing you guys were just talking about. The U.S. did surpass One million Americans tested this week, a sort of key milestone that the administration had said could have been possible. They were saying there was capacity to do that weeks ago, but we're just hitting that now. Um, Now, we also have pending tests there on the chart. Uh, Only a few states report these, but they do reveal some backlogs, particularly in states like California. Now, if you look at that pie chart there, it shows you that commercial labs are doing the bulk of the testing in this country, mostly Quest, LabCorp, Bioreference Laboratories, Mayo Clinic Labs. Uh, and some others uh, doing about 800,000 so far. Uh, now, there's a few reasons why we are seeing these backlogs. You guys were talking about those shortages of personal protective equipment. There's also a shortage of the supplies needed to run these tests, the chemical reagents, the swabs. I know Jim had one of the makers on his show. Um, there's shortages of these supplies. Um, there's also a backlog that was generated in testing before these companies could really get the technology up and running. Tests were just coming at them in huge numbers. So that backlog started from the beginning and they're working to uh, kind of go through it now. Um, I'm also hearing that there is a logistics slowdown with some of the companies that have to ship the samples to their labs as there are fewer flights going around the country. That can slow down the processing as well. Uh, And finally, Dr. Debbie Burks last night uh, at the White House briefing saying that some of the more recently approved tests aren't being used because from the beginning, the earliest tests that got approval, labs just got used to using that technology, sending their samples to the same place. And as these backlogs got created, um, they didn't switch. So there's just this sort of clunk in the system that's causing this issue. Now, this also breaks down uh, to a lot of variability on the state level. We've got a map here showing the levels of testing uh, per capita in each state. It won't surprise anybody that New York is number one. They've done the most tests uh, per person in the state. But check out those gray states. That doesn't mean they're not doing any testing, but they're doing the least. Texas, California, Um, Oklahoma, uh, those states have the lowest per capita testing levels in the country. Uh, California has these gigantic backlogs. Uh, So even though we are hearing that the curve might be bending there, that's not based on the number of cases. Doctors say the best gauge to use for what's bending the curve in California is hospitalizations uh, and deaths, guys. And they are seeing some positive signs there. Back over to you. 
Uh, okay, Meg, thank you for the update uh, on all fronts uh, coronavirus related at this point. Uh, let's get to Phil LeBeau now uh, for auto sales, which I can imagine are not looking particularly good. Phil. David, these will be some ugly numbers today. Let's start first off with Fiat Chrysler reporting first quarter sales, a decline of 10.4 percent. That is weaker than the Edmunds estimate of a decline of 7.1 percent. For some perspective, comparing that with the fourth quarter of last year, it was down 18 percent. So we're clearly seeing the impact of March sales. And basically the last three weeks of March is where we saw very weak sales. Fiat Chrysler out, and you'll see this from a number of automakers if they haven't already done it. It's going to be offering 0% financing over seven years. That's a new promotion. They'll begin now. No payments for 90 days. But let's be honest here. What really matters, April, May, and June. April numbers are going to be worse than anybody predicted. May's not going to be much better. We'll also be getting GM numbers a little bit later on today. And one other note, Porsche out with its Q1 sales down 20.2%. Bottom line is this, guys, weakest numbers likely since around 2013, 2012 in terms of first quarter sales, and that's how weak they're going to be. Guys, back to you. Yeah. Uh, Phil, I mean, quickly, where do we stand in terms of manufacturing plans? Obviously, many dealerships across the country are closed as well uh, at this point, correct? All the manufacturing plants, there is not a single major manufacturing plant, final assembly plant that is working right now in the U.S. They're all completely shut down. So you've got no manufacturing going on. In terms of dealerships, you'll hear this story out there, David. You'll hear dealers saying, well, you can still order online. You can still buy and we'll deliver to you. That's a drop in the bucket compared to what they usually do. They're essentially shut down for most of the country. There are some parts of the country where they're still open, where there are not shelter-in-place orders. But generally speaking, the Northeast, Upper Midwest, West Coast, they're, they're not operating right now. Their op- service bays are operating, but not in terms of sales. All right, Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau reporting, of course, on those latest auto sales uh, and the landscape right now as well. We're going to take a quick break on Squawk on the Street. When we come back, we will be hearing from the Treasury Secretary of the United States, Stephen Mnuchin. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Our pleasure to bring in the uh, Secretary of Treasury, Stephen Mnuchin. Uh, Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for coming back to uh, CNBC. Jim, it's great to be with you as usual. All right. So I was thrilled last night. I got my U.S. Department of Treasury Assistance for Small Business. The Paycheck Protection Program, $349 billion. We got to get everybody who, uh, who has small businesses to look at that immediately. How do we do that? Jim, as I, as I said, this program is going to be up and running tomorrow. I'm, I'm pleased that working with the SBA, we're going to be able to deliver it. 
As you said, the Paycheck Protection Program, you can take out a loan for up to eight weeks of payroll as well as overhead. You hire the people back. As long as you hire the people back, the loan is forgiven. I'd encourage every small business to go to treasury.gov. There's a red banner on the top. Click on it, and you will get the information. And you can go to any SBA lender. You can go to any FDIC-insured bank in any credit union. Call your lender. See if they participate. I very much want people to sign up for this. It's a great way to hire people back or make sure you're getting paid if you have people at work. And this will cover about 50% of the payroll of, of the private enterprises. Yep. I thought that this was the single most important thing that's happened so far, including the overhead, which I thought was fantastic. Let's talk about the next program. We started hearing, bubbling up, the notion that both parties would like to see a bond, perhaps some sort of infrastructure or anti-COVID bond. Now, uh, Mr. Secretary, you know the credit markets better than any any Treasury Secretary that we've ever had, maybe Secretary Rubin. But you know that that 30-year is basically a giveaway, 1.2%. Can we buy that? We want to buy COVID war bonds. Will you give us that opportunity? Jim, you can buy as many 30 years as you want. That's no problem. We'll also be selling 20 years as well. And uh, let me just say the borrowing on the short end of the curve is, is extremely attractive for us as well. So we're very focused on executing the existing plans and doing the government financing, which is being very well received. Can you give us a sense of the country is about to pay rent? I, uh, we have, we have uh, the CEO of City later on, Michael Corbett. I'm concerned that people will say, you know what, I don't have to pay my mortgage. And the ripple effect here, particularly at the corporate level, uh, could be uh, as bad, some people think, as what happened during the Great Recession. Uh, can you give us your sense of how tough it could be for, uh, for in the mortgage market? Well, Jim, let me, let me just say before I get to the mortgage market, and, and let me just say, you know, we are executing on these plans. We have the SBA plan. As I've said, we have the plan of direct deposit, which is going to be up and running in another few weeks. That's going to get money into people's accounts. And we also have the enhanced unemployment insurance. So hopefully workers, no fault of their own, who aren't working uh, because of this, they're going to get money in their pockets. And to the extent that they have problems with mortgages, the FHFA has already come out and said that they will forbear. So what that, what that means is if people don't have jobs and people have hardship, they can forbear. If people do have jobs... Uh, we expect those people to continue to pay their mortgages. But that that will be dealt with on a bank-by-bank basis. And the most important thing is that FHA loans, uh, GSE loans, Fannie and Freddie, which is the majority of the market, the government will be giving people time to pay those loans. Mr. Secretary, it's David Faber. Um, Jim references, I think, in part in his question, but I'd love to follow up. The president recently tweeting about a big infrastructure effort, perhaps as much as another $2 trillion. Is that a real effort? Are you in negotiations at all with, uh, within the House and the Senate in terms of trying to get something, as this is called a phase four sort of plan? Well, as you know, the president's been very interested in infrastructure. This goes back to the campaign. The, the president very much wants to rebuild the country. And with interest rates low, that, that's something that's very important to him. Uh, we've been discussing this for the last year with the Democrats and the Republicans. I've had ongoing conversations with Richie Neal on this, and uh, we'll continue to have those conversations. So we expect there will be more bills 
and we think it, it is a great time now to invest in infrastructure. Mr. Secretary, it's Carl Quintanilla. Uh, our Eamon Javer is reporting on uh, how quickly plans are being made for a phase four stimulus package. His reporting suggests that right now the emphasis of the White House is on uh, executing uh, phase three. Can you talk about that? Well, again, let me just say the most important issue is execution on what we have. We have a, a lot of money. We need to get that into hardworking Americans' hands. We also have facilities that we're working very closely with the Fed that will inject a lot of money into this economy quickly. As I've said, we need to get these things going in the next few weeks. H having money that's sitting around and distributing in four months does no good to hardworking Americans. Uh, one of the things I've heard is, you know, this small business program is going to be so popular that we're going to run out of our $350 billion. If that's the case, I can assure you that will be the top of the list for me to go back to Congress on. It has huge bipartisan support, and we want to protect small business. But we're also coming out with a Main Street lending program with the Fed that will help mid-sized businesses. We'll be looking at programs for state and local governments. We've already had programs for large companies, for money markets, to support money markets. So I can assure you, uh, Jay Powell and I are working round the clock at providing liquidity into this economy. Secretary Musin, thank you again for this. I think people don't understand the contrast between 2007, 2009, big banks get bailed out. You're actually helping the base of the country. 85% of the workers can be covered ultimately by what you're doing. And as someone who's already filled this out, I, I think people have to fill it out. It's vital. There should be no excuses for small business because you're making the money available. Now, how about these big banks? This, uh, yes, yesterday, the Bank of England said, you know what? The banks over there, they should halt paying their dividends. Now, I understand we stopped the buybacks. Do we need to stop paying dividends at our banks? Jim, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave that to the banks. We want to make sure that they have plenty of capital to grow their business. I assume that's their number one issue. They want to make loans to help American business. That, that, that's their priority. And I'm sure that's where they're going to be focused on, on putting their capital. As, I, as I've spoken to every single one of these bankers, good news is our banks are in good shape. They're out there lending. They want to support the markets. They want to support small business. And that's their focus. Now, I know you can't reveal who is a necessary entity versus who isn't. Uh, but we do have two different travel entities that are out there. We have the cruise ships, uh, by the way, that don't pay U.S. taxes, and I think that probably is of interest to you. And we have the airlines that do. Uh, w are you ready to take stakes in the airlines, which will keep them alive? Because when this is over, we need strong airlines. But do we need strong cruise ships? Well, Jim, let me just say that the, the way the program works with Congress is it's very specific. There, there are limited industries that I can deal with direct. The, the airlines, the passenger airlines, the cargo airlines, and national security companies are the only areas and their contractors that we can deal with direct. And we've already begun to have those discussions. We've posted applications for the airlines. Uh, we'll be sitting down with them. Again, it's very critical. Anything they take, they will have to maintain all of their employees. So we're working on that quickly. We do not have the ability under the congressional programs to do anything with cruise ships direct. Uh, we do have the ability to do broad-based programs with the Fed where everybody is treated equally. Mr. Secretary, I guess it's David Faber again. On the airlines, what are your expectations there in terms of their willingness to potentially take or allow the government to take equity stakes? 
I think there's some concern amongst employees. They won't do that and jobs will be lost. Uh, and time is obviously of the essence, given those incredible numbers being so low in terms of passengers uh, on the airlines right now. So time is definitely of the essence. And let me comment, uh, you look very comfortable in your home there. I think I, I don't want you guys to get too used to this. Uh, I want to see you guys back in the studio. But let, let me say time is of the essence. Uh, we will be doing this very quickly. These are going to be optional programs. We're not forcing airlines to do these deals. We'll make these, these available to the airlines. If they want to take them, they'll take them. Uh, I think, as you know, different airlines are different credits. We've been very clear that taxpayers will be compensated for anything we do. Um, I wanted to follow up as well on my previous question that you answered about potential infrastructure bills. Mr. Secretary, you said uh, at the very end of your comment there will be more bills. Were you referring to more infrastructure bills or were you referring to, in general, more bills dealing with uh, the relief that this economy needs? The, the president has been very clear. He, he is prepared to do whatever we need to do to make sure that American workers and American business are protected. This is a unique situation. This is a situation where, because of a medical issue, which we're fighting a war on this virus, which we will win, we have shut down parts of the economy, and the president is determined that we will protect American workers American business. We now have a lot of money to do that, if we need more programs or more money, we will be going back to Congress and asking for that. Mr. Secretary, uh, I think that the, it's very explicit how you do the, the loan. I thank you for making it so that you really just can read it and click and get it. But what I want to know is at, how do we get the word out to people who have one and two uh, people? At their this I know you're really focused on. I know you're focused on the business that's 10 people. I know you're focused on the business that's three people. When I read this, I was shocked at how that you give us even some overhead protection. How do we in the media get the word out? Because there's tremendous amount of negativity about what's going on in the uh, in the actual, of course, covid world. But this is something I've never seen before. I think it's just something that a lot of people may not even know they can apply to. What do we do to let people know that this is a way to keep your job during this period? Jim, you got to keep talking about it and get everybody to sign up. So, you know, I, I want to thank all the people at the SBA and the Treasury who have been literally working 24 hours. The fact that we've been able to get up a new program in less than a week is just extraordinary. Uh, as you said, this not only covers small businesses, it will cover independent contractors uh, as well as self-employed and, and sole proprietors. It will take an extra week for us to get that up and running. So that will be up and running next Friday. And uh, I just want to thank every pe everyone in the government who delivered on our commitment to get this up and running tomorrow. Mr. Secretary, I'm really concerned about the job creation. It was the Permian, the job creation. It was the, uh, I'd say, let, let's just call it something that I know the president cares tremendously about, our energy independence. Uh, can we really let this happen? Can we really let oil go to $10 and wipe out our own independence and wipe out an industry that I know you think is very important for job creation? Can we just stand by and let that happen? Well, Jim, you know, I, we, we talked about getting approval from Congress of, of buying oil at these prices and filling up our, our strategic reserves. Uh, we'll continue to ask Congress for that approval. Uh, and I know the president has had calls with both Saudi Arabia and Russia to talk about this. The president is absolutely determined to protect our, our energy independence and our ability to 
continue in this industry, which is a very important industry for our workers. Mr. Secretary, uh, you mentioned uh, to Jim the Fed's Main Street lending program. Can you give us a little more sense as to when it's going to be fully implemented? What your conversations with uh, Chairman Powell focus on? Just a bit more there in terms of allowing us to understand what could be an enormous impact, obviously, from that program. Well, but well, both the Fed and, and Treasury has a team of people. We're meeting on this every day. It's a very big priority. Um, it's something we're focused on the design, but we want to make sure that mid-market companies have access to liquidity. And uh, again, I can't comment on the exact timing, but let me just say it will hopefully be soon because, again, all these programs, we want to get up and running so that they're available to American business and American workers quickly. That's our objective, and uh, we'll be delivering on that shortly. Just one last one. I know that the Treasury seems to be a little bit averse, as was uh, when I used to ask uh, Secretary Geithner about it, to giving us a chance, Americans, to be able to buy a specifically labeled bond that would help small business. Uh, why not have a Mnuchin bond, a, a President Trump, I don't really care, a, a crushed COVID bond, but why not give us something that is like the war? Because Americans want to contribute. And if you had a small business bond that would allow it so even businesses could begin when this is over, make new businesses, give them loans, I think it would be embraced by both Democrats and Republicans, provided as infrastructure in it. And I know that if you got behind it, sir, it would happen. Well, Jim, we'll, we'll continue to work with you on that. Uh, as I said, our, our, our focus is making sure these programs get up and running. we got $6 trillion to put into the economy. That, that should create a lot of liquidity and a lot of help for small businesses and American workers. And as we deliver on that liquidity, it's going to create a lot of help. So that, that's really our focus. And as I said, we'll be working with the president on infrastructure and other areas to continue to work with Congress on. Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for calling. And thank you so much for doing exactly what you said you'd do and more for small business, because that's 85 percent of our country. Always great to talk to you. Good. And, Jim, I'd only hope that you guys keep on talking about these small business loans all day. Go to Treasury.gov, get the information, call your lenders, sign up. You sure will, because that is the backbone of our country. Carl and David? Yeah, you know, Jim, very interesting, of course. He, uh, that is such an important program. You've brought it up many times. The secretary obviously bringing it up constantly so that people know how to connect. So if they're not being contacted by their bank, they reach out. And clearly indicating that there's more money behind the 350 if, in fact, the program gets fully subscribed to. Uh, you pointed this out many times. It is a key to keeping employment levels in small businesses, isn't it, Jim? Because yeah. the loans are forgiven if you keep the employees. Yeah, I, I think that, first of all, we didn't know about the overhead. One of the big worries that I had is, well, wait a second. How about the lighting bill? How about the insurance bill? Taken care of. Then I also thought it would be too, uh, too abstruse and obtuse. If you go in and click on it, it's a couple clicks. Then some people were criticizing me on Twitter, which is kind of the main. That's why I became a, the, you know, that sober Kay, Jimmy Chill. Uh, that, that it's only because I have a banker that I don't have no banker. I couldn't even get a loan from J.P. Morgan. Give me a break. But you can fill this out and get a loan. Now, you do have to call the bank. 
but it's not just you know certain people get it. This thing is for everybody, and it is so the opposite. When we think about 2007, 2009, did we think about who got the bailout and who didn't get get prosecuted. This is a license to be able to keep people. And I know a lot of small business people are saying, you know what? I I guess I got to go. Don't go. Just go to the site. Get the money. They're giving it to you and keep hiring and start new businesses because that's what's going to happen when we get out to the other side. It can't just be Costco, Walmart and, and Amazon. It can't be. We have to do better than that. And that's what I'm hoping the program does. I love this program. Yeah, uh, Jim, you've been pretty uh, consistent on that. I, I noticed today uh, Palo Alto Networks joins the club, the Benioff Club, uh, vowing not to lay off employees during the pandemic. Uh, Caterpillar uh, with some pay raise uh, initiatives. I see our own uh, parent, Comcast, uh, devoting $500 million to employees who are uh, impacted and senior management giving up the remainder of their salaries for the rest of the year. So a lot of this is going to come from the top down. Well, it's really important. The small business loan program will be up and running on Friday, not tomorrow. I want to be sure everybody knows it's Friday. Don't get discouraged. Uh, But this is a different world. We have people like, yeah, I I had Nikesh Aurora on on Palo Alto last night. And I I asked him, I said, look, this doesn't help earnings per share. If you're going to lay off anybody, because I know the orders can't be as good. And I asked some, it was somewhat facetious, because obviously in the old world, all we cared about was earnings per share. In the new world, uh, you can call it the Benioff world, since he's out there trying to get everybody to take this pledge, as as am I. In the new world, we're trying to think about what happens after COVID. And after COVID, we've got a a world where people are going to still have a job. I know it's it's so terrible terrible to look at these employment numbers and see how bad they're going to be. Uh, but everybody's chipping. Everybody's chipping away. And when you see these uh, uh, these forgiveness plans and when you see that the, that these companies who could lay off people are not laying off people, you have a world that may be the kind of world that Benioff from the CEO of Salesforce says, which is that business is the greatest force for social change. There are businesses that I urge to think, take the pledge not to lay people off, and we will remember you on the other side. David, there is something <laughs> going on in the country that is ethereal, that is different, and I know that we're, that we're perplexed because there is such gloom, but there is another thing happening in capitalism, which is just turns out that it's not as rapacious as I know I thought it would be. Well, we can certainly hope that that's the case. It's a subject that we discussed a great deal before this crisis hit, of course, in terms of uh, ESG, but overall the changing nature of capitalism and, in fact, whether or not uh, shareholder primacy would hold, Jim. So many things, I'm in the camp that so many things are going to be changed uh, as a result of this in terms of behavior. Uh, in terms of corporate America, as you say, and so many other areas, frankly, that we don't even really yet have a handle on. So let's see. Let's take let's take uh, advantage of this moment and join on the phone. Join us on the phone is City's CEO, Mike Corbett. Michael, always great to talk to you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me this morning. Uh, will you take the pledge, sir? You take the pledge to uh, not uh, have any layoffs because I would normally think that given the fact that things are tougher, city would, the old city, would lay off people right now. Well, Jim, we, we instituted our own pledge a while back that we haven't been laying people off 
And we actually announced a few weeks ago that about 75,000 of my colleagues would be receiving a check, helping them with the challenging times right now. We've given anyone who needs it in our company paid time off, sick, or challenged family situations. We've expanded benefits, and uh, we've obviously been expanding the utilization of our foundation in the community. So um, we're, we're pledged plus at this time. Okay, there are a lot of people, particularly seniors, who rely on dividends for income. You currently have a yield of 5.1%. Yesterday, the European banks suspended their dividends. Uh, Do you have any plans to do that, or can we count on the dividend? Because I know that we had to not count on the buyback anymore. Yeah, you know, we, uh, a group of us, the eight large banks in the U.S., made the decision a few weeks ago that we would be suspending buybacks. And if you look at in the in the U.S. banking system, in particular amongst the largest bank buybacks, constitute the, the majority, in our case, vast majority of the capital return to our shareholders. We did that to, to be in sync with the challenge of the crisis that, that's going on and to, to make sure that all of us coming in in strong capital and liquidity positions could maintain that stance. And uh, I think there's some structural and nuances, Jim, between the U.S. and Europe that are a bit different. One is that the European banks pay an annual dividend, and so there's a window in which to declare we, put, we pay quarterly uh, dividends. If you look at the capital levels, if you look at the earnings of the U.S. banks, uh, I think they come into this in a bit of a different uh, – from a different position, a position probably of some more strength. So, um, you know, uh, from our perspective, our dividend is sound, and we plan on continuing to pay it. Michael, I, I keep reading these articles. Uh, for day, today's The New York Times, outbreak sets off stampede by companies to tap credit. I read that the companies that are involved in the mortgage market are, are, are asking for forbearance. I actually read a piece this morning saying that these, these combinations, the revolvers, the mortgage market, could be worse than 2007 to 2009. I'm, I know, and you know me outside of work, occasionally given to hyperbole. But is that hyperbole? And is it something that we should be more worried about than we are, which is this colossal edifice coming down because of forbearance? Well, I, I think, you know, one is that, you know, to, to really set the table here, Jim, this really is a, a public health crisis that has manifested itself into a economic crisis. And I've heard you talk about it a number of times. The testing and vaccines are, are core to getting us back on track. And um, certainly from a U.S. perspective and from a broader global perspective, the worst thing that we can have is uncertainty. But I have to say in these times, people uh, people have been rising to the challenge and uh, the acts of kindness and uh, acts of giving that I've seen have truly been extraordinary. And there's no doubt in my mind, uh, like other things before, we're going to get through this. And I think it's up to the system to, to try and chart that way. She had Secretary Mnuchin on, and I would start out by saying that the actions of our government of the administration, of the Treasury, of the Federal Reserve have just been extraordinary. And as banks, our role is to, is to, or our roles are to do a couple things. One is to make sure that we're here supporting our customers and clients, which we're doing. And as you talk about credit, the, the Bank Policy Institute put out a piece last night saying that um, banks in the U.S. lent about $400 billion in the first quarter of the year. City was over $50 billion of that in terms of supporting uh, our clients. Sure, we've seen uh, revolver draws, uh, but it hasn't been um, 
necessarily outsized. And we've seen the bond markets functioning pretty well. We had a record month of $260 billion of issuance in investment grade. We've seen some high yield issues get done. Uh, and I think companies right now view this and the uncertainty as a place where it's prudent to build liquidity. And so uh, the programs that we've put in place, the programs that the government has put in place, uh, and other banks have, uh, are there to do that. Uh, let me ask you, Mike. Mr. Cor- uh, Mr. Oh, Corbett. Go ahead, David. Oh, s- s- thank you, you, Jim. Uh, Mr. Corbett, it's David Faber. You know, on this subject of capital adequacy and liquidity, can you give us a sense as to what your modeling looks like, given the revolvers that are being pulled down? Now, you just mentioned $50 billion in the first quarter in terms of new lending. But we know that there are going to be some bankruptcies. We know that there are going to people unable, be people unable to pay things like their credit cards. Um, what do your models look like and tell you in terms of your capital adequacy, in terms of your reserve cushion? You seem to be painting a positive picture. Is that the way you feel right now, given all the unknowns that are yet to come? Well, as you say, David, there there are a lot of unknowns, um, but you've seen over the last several years the stress testing that's gone on in the system and the severity of the scenarios that the banks are run and held to in terms of capital and liquidity liquidity adequacy. And I think we we feel like we're coming into this from a position of strength. Clearly, the system is going to be challenged that, um, uh, as your own people say, as our people say, we're going to see spikes in unemployment. And I think the responsibility of the system is to try and turn that those spikes as quickly as possible. And uh, going back to Secretary Mnuchin's comments, I think the CARES Act, this $350 billion that we need to get ASAP into small business hands is critical. Uh, as part of that. And uh, I think from, from our perspective, you know, we're here, we're open, we're lending, um, and uh, we're also making sure that our customers and clients have the ability to take advantage of these government programs. I think an important nuance that we've got to be mindful of here, though, is that uh, there's liquidity and there's the extension of credit, and both things have to be operating properly. And I think a lot of what we've seen is is uh, is the government and uh, and uh, our regulators responding to to liquidity. And I think the second leg of this is we all have to be um, focused on making sure that we can get credit into the into the right hands to make sure these businesses and people have a chance. Uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Mr. Corbett. But Chapel Trust has owned City for ages. It was a huge winner. Obviously, now it's down like all the bank stocks. Uh, tangible book value, $70, completely scrubbed, probably the cleanest of all. Stock at 39 can't buy back stock, which unfortunately I think might be a great buy. But does this signal something that we don't know? Does the, does the decline in stock signal that the non-performers are going to spike? Does it signal that the book value no longer has the relevance that it used to? Because the disconnect, as you know, is palpable. Listen, as I said, we, we go into this from a, a position of sound capital and liquidity and balance sheet. Uh, and as you say, it's, it's been scrubbed. Um, but there's a lot of uncertainties out there and uh, around rising unemployment, around business challenges. I think people look and they, they say, and it's not necessarily city-specific, but they say, you know, the banks are, are, are there. They're, they have exposure to the businesses. They have exposure to the people. And we don't know where this is going to go, kind of going back to my point of, of uncertainty. 
But again, I, I think the banks come into this from a position of strength, and I think we've got a very important role to play here, not just in terms of our day-to-day jobs of supporting our customers and clients, which we do, but being that sound intermediary between fiscal and monetary and the real economy and making sure that all these extraordinary actions, not just here in the U.S., but around the world, can be brought to bear and brought to life uh, for our economies and the, and the people in them. Hey, Michael, it's Carl. Um, your point about liquidity and extension of credit in the short term is obviously the most important thing. But once caseload in this country returns to a so-called manageable level, how does small business lending and consumer lending structurally change? What would you say to small business owners who are worried about getting a loan a year from now, having taken on debt and, and lived through uh, the episode that we're in? Well, I think one, you know, to Secretary Mnuchin's point that um, provided this money is used around what's outlined, it actually won't be ballooning their debt. And um, we're all hoping through through testing, through social distancing and the other best practices that are going on that we could bend this curve relatively quickly. And, you know, in the in the CARES program, uh, you effectively get two and a half months of coverage. And, uh, you know, we're hoping that we can be able to bend this curve and to get these businesses back on their feet or keep them on their feet uh, to be able to come out the other side of this so that they're not uh, ballooned up with debt or having challenges in terms of debt service into the future. And then they can make their decisions in terms of how they want to invest in CapEx and grow their business. Mr. Corbett, it's David Faber again. You know, one thing that we hopefully look forward to, of course, is getting on the other side of this. And one of the key questions is how are behaviors going to change in a significant way? As the leader of a large organization with scores of employees, I assume, working from home, not to mention a lot of retail frontage in terms of your branches, how do you see city and in general the changes uh, that are taking place now affecting behavior in the future in terms of your workforce, uh, both uh, on trading desks or bankers and the people in the branches? Well, uh, we all went into this with lots of contingency plans. Uh, I, I don't think many or any of us really imagined the day where we would have the vast majority of our people working from home. Um, as of today, we've got over 160,000 of our 200,000 employees working from home um, at various percentages around the world, but roughly 80% uh, of our people. And we didn't imagine that. And um, I think a couple things really come out of this is one is that uh, one is we can do it, that we stood this up very quickly. And I think we were fortunate, if you would call it that, in terms of uh, having been in this public health crisis in Asia early on and see it coming west and had the ability to experiment and try different things uh, so that as it came here, uh, we were we were as prepared as, as we could be. Um, I think it it, um, it changes things from a, a social aspect in terms of uh, potentially how people interact and um, what meetings or other things are like, maybe in particular at certain times of the year, and maybe some of your more contagious seasons. Uh, I think it changes the way that businesses and people contingency plan. You know, as an example, uh, just from a human aspect, as I, I grew up in a family with two Depression-era World War II parents, and our pantry was always stocked. 
And maybe going forward, the pantry is just going to be a lot fuller in a number of homes around the world as people think about things differently. Michael, you remember those, Jesus, canned peaches, canned pears from Del Monte? Weren't they terrible? We didn't know, though, at the time that food cocktail wasn't so bad. <laughs> hey, let, 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 me, let me ask you something. Uh, we had the Treasury Secretary on. And he's talking about this great page that he created where on Friday we can uh, apply for loans. And we talk about bankers. So how does it work? Let's say Citi's my banker. And I, I, I have a dry cleaner. And it's pretty consistent. Remember, I don't have any inventory with dry cleaner. That's why it's such a good business. Uh, do I uh, go to my branch? Do I call? What do I do to be sure that I get my money? Well, one is we instituted several weeks back for small business um, basically available anytime support, nights, weekends for our small businesses. And I think one thing that's critical in terms of the implementation of what's gotten to be known as the Payroll Protection Act is that we've got the ability to do it digitally. Right? We don't want to have people having to come out. So making sure that we've got the digital interface set up so that people can apply online, we can get the documentation that we need online for the vast majority of these loans, and that we can turn this money and get it into small business hands as quickly as we can. So from our perspective, we are working around the clock to make sure that our portal is set up and that uh, not just our business, but any business that wants to come to us uh, for help and for access to the program that we're up and running to be able to do that. Michael, you're a family guy. I know your wife, know your kids. Uh, what's it like when you get up in the morning? Do you think about like the mall that might close? Do you think about the loans that, that are that are in trouble? Do you think about uh, about covid and your family? And what do you do uh, about the way are you separated from your family? What, what's life like for a big banker right now in an era that we've never seen before? So uh, I'm fortunate that um, I'm, I'm with my wife. I am with my son and my daughter-in-law. My, my daughter and her husband live abroad, and, and they're fine and, and being um, sheltered in place with, with uh, her husband's family. Um, World, World Headquarters is set up in something that's a little bit bigger than a closet. Um, initially, we had a skirmish to, to, to get <laughs> Wi-Fi and, and bandwidth uh, sufficient to support all of us. But, you know, the day starts um, clearly with the family, but um, it's thinking about our people, our 200,000 people, and how do we keep them out of harm's way? How do we do everything we can to support our customers and clients, and what are the things that we can be doing uh, to be able to do that? And obviously trying to make sure that we're, in the long run, making the right decisions for our shareholders in terms of how we run the bank and making sure that we're supporting the communities that we're, that we're in and um, you know, kind of knowing that those communities need to, to be there and to be healthy in order for us to, to, um, to be healthy. So I think it's really in the round, and it goes back to, I think, what you were talking about before in terms of finding the right balance between, uh, between all your different constituencies. And i, I got to say, from a city perspective, my colleagues have been incredible in terms of um, the resilience and uh, people doing just extraordinary things to, to help other people, to help our customers and clients. And, and again, I think, you know, we're, we're seeing just great examples of human nature and, and really who we are. And uh, I'm very encouraged by that. Michael, your, uh, your 
point about your family members and the depression area family members is, is so vivid. I wonder, you know, in the early days when we really got a sense of how serious this was going to be uh, just a month or two ago, uh, there were anecdotal stories about bank branches running out of hundred dollar bills, uh, demand for cash. Can you got any color around that? And what's happened with deposits lately? Well, um, Carl, I would say, you know, we've, we've tried to strike the right balance. We've tried to make sure that there's um, money in our ATMs constantly. We want to make sure that our, our ATM screens are getting uh, cleaned and disinfected constantly. Uh, we want to make sure that uh, our branches are open. We may not have every branch open, but we've got our branch employees at work. And at the same time, we want to make sure that they're safe, that there's enough distance between them and the people that they're serving such that we don't put them in harm's way. And so we have operated really uninterrupted through this. Uh, and again, we've really been trying to to also drive people remotely and to make sure they take advantage of all the digital things that are out there. So re remote uh, check deposit, their ability, we've up limits in terms of the usage of Zelle and the way people can transfer money. And of course, um, you know, we're, we're always open to make sure that people have access to their cash when they want it. Uh, Mr. Corbett, David Faber again. Earlier, you had said, I think in answer to one of my questions, that the system, meaning the financial system, is going to be challenged. I wonder, what are you watching closely, whether it's an increase uh, in infections or something in the financial markets, to try to determine when that challenge is going to peak and when we're going to sort of be on the other side of it? You know, I think one of the lessons here, David, is that, you know, in, in this, and I think it's an important lesson for life, that, um, that y you can't go to where this is. When we look at the virus, if we simply judged where we are today, by nature, we're behind it. And I think what we've tried to do is really look and try and get, get to this or get ahead of it. And I think the, the expectations being put out there around that it's likely in the U.S. to get worse before it gets better. Um, I would say another important thing is that, you know, not everything is, is equal in this, meaning that from a, a geography perspective uh, around the world, the cure rate or the, uh, the, um, the recidivism of this um, will be at different pace based on, on social practices, on, on many testing or other things. And we've got to understand that's going to be the case in the United States, that maybe New York is going to be at the front end of this in terms of peaking and hopefully rolling over. But we're going to have to take a more nationalist approach. Uh, and so clearly we're watching the virus, we're watching the pace of acceleration, deceleration, and the good news is we're seeing some early signs of some deceleration, and hopefully as this roll, rolls over, it rolls over quickly. But I think we've got to be mindful, and again, we've seen it in places like Asia and had uh, calls with my colleagues this morning that we're seeing some importing where cases are starting to go back up as people are starting to come back home or to move again, and I think we've got to be mindful of that. I think from a, from an economic perspective, employment's clearly going to be uh, a big thing that we're going to watch. And, and uh, again, I just think some of the vulnerabilities of the U.S. economy around uh, some of the, the challenge sectors, and I saw a statistic in one of our reports right now that said 75% of the people and 90% of the GDP in the United States right now is either at stay at home or social distancing. 
And and so to me, it comes down to how quickly can we turn this? Um, how quickly can we get testing and get uncertainty out? Uh, and how quickly can we get people back to work and uh, and back to living normal lives uh, as part of this? And those are those are the things that we're obviously watching very closely. All right, uh, Michael, uh, very important to point out the City Foundation committed to provide $15 million to support COVID-19-related relief activities globally. Uh, people can find out from your website, I'm sure, how it's being allocated. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Michael, and for giving us the much-needed perspective and optimistic perspective that you always share. Great to talk to you, sir. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Stay healthy, guys. That's Michael Corbett, Run City. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.